0: places can you hear me now you know a couple of nights ago me and brandon were in walmart as we tend to be like every day my dad was working on a little project down at his house and he needed a drill bit his eighth of an inch drill bit was too dull to use so he wanted me to go to walmart and get him another drill bit so me and Brandon were heading back to the tool section, and lo and behold, the drill bits were locked up inside of a big glass case to prevent people from stealing them. And I looked at Brandon and I said, oh great, we're never going to find anybody that's going to open this for us. So I waited a couple of seconds and I heard some uh, rustling from a couple of miles over, and I told Brandon, that might be somebody that's working here, let's go check it out. We walked over, we followed the sound over to the automotive department. And there was a Walmart employee over there working and stocking the shelf with some transmission fluid or something. I didn't look at his name badge to see his name, but for the purposes of this little story, we're going to call him Bob. So I walked up to Bob and I said, "Uh, excuse me sir, do you have a key for that glass case? I need to get a drill bit. So Bob took the box that he was working from, and he slammed it down, and he said, (sighs) So I looked at Brandon, kind of raised my eyebrows, thinking, yeah, this guy's a little bundle of sunshine. So he started digging around in his pocket. He found the key. So I was standing there waiting for him to walk along with me, and he motioned his hands for me to go first, and he didn't speak a word. So on the way over to the glass case, another customer kind of, intercepted Bob and stopped him and asked him where the spray foam was at and Bob said it's over there I can't show you right now I've gotta wait on this guy so the second customer his uh, time was apparently more important than mine so he's like, well all I need is the spray foam just show me where it is so Bob being the gentleman that he was walked over and started helping the second guy So me and Brandon went to the glass case and stood there for two or three minutes waiting for Bob to get done with the other guy. So Bob finally showed up and he unlocked the glass door and just stood there. And I was thinking, "Uh, yeah you uh, want me to open that for you? Because the, the door was still closed. So he just stood back and I opened the glass case myself after he unlocked it. And I got the drill bit that I needed. And I thanked him, and he still didn't speak a word. Still just unbelievably upset that I would disrupt his time. And I guess the moral of the story is don't be like Bob. Do some good, get out, inspire people, and be kind and nice to people and stuff. Bob's a punk.
1: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening in dark places, friends. This is your little friend, Mr. Haunted, and I came across this uh, item on YouTube. Um, There's a a channel called Slapped Ham that I frequently watch on YouTube. Um, Check it out. And they had a question. Who would you rather be friends with? The Fresno Nightcrawler, Mothman, the Ningen, or the Jersey Devil? So they picked four cryptids. I had to look up Ningen. It's a Japanese creature that looks like the Fresno Nightcrawler. So I picked Mothman. And with 14,000 votes total, the leader is Mothman with 63%. Jersey Devil, 18% of the votes. The Fresno Nightcrawler, 13%. And the Ningen, only 5% trailing behind. So I thought that would be an interesting piece of news. Um, who would you rather be friends with? Thank you. (laughs) Slapped Ham, check out Slapped Ham. Our friends at Slapped Ham.
0: Hey, I've never heard of Slapped Ham before. So yeah, I subscribed and I'm gonna check them out. My money's on Mothman though. Can't go wrong with Mothman. And now here is the Nicolas Cage meltdown of the week. We have to talk.
1: I told you we can't.
0: Young man. What, is it? what? Are you being held prisoner or what? What is this? Give me a signal, Julie. Get out of the car. But I love you.
1: Get out of the car. Let's go. Toronto, a bustling city brimming with culture and commerce, has its own creepy urban legends. While they should be taken with a grain of salt, it's eerily fascinating to hear about strange occurrences, from ghostly experiences at the University of Toronto to secret alien bases beneath Lake Ontario. I'm going to share a list with you of the creepiest urban myths Toronto has to offer. The Cave Monster Flash back to your adventurous self from childhood, engaged in a round of hide-and-seek in your neighborhood with your friends, you find the perfect hiding place, an empty concrete tunnel, crawling into the tunnel and looking up ahead. All you encounter is the darkness in the darkness is a pair of red eyes looking back, menacingly whispering, "Leave me alone." While this story could sound like a cautionary tale for children told by parents. It wasn't far from the truth. In 1979, a 51-year-old man named Ernest went looking for his missing kitten, Aw on Parliament Street and had such an experience. The monster was described as having gray fur, red eyes, and weighing approximately 30 pounds. This story has prompted the city of Toronto to inspect the tunnel over safety concerns that children might try to enter. There are no other eyewitnesses, and it has all the traits of being a perfect urban legend, a monster, an intriguing story, mystery, and the ability to give you goosebumps. Let me just add, a monster that weighs 30 pounds? I would just kick it.
0: Or give him a hug. Maybe he just needs a friend. For over 200 years, people in the coastal region of British Columbia have been spotting this plesiosaur-looking sea serpent with the head of a horse, or sometimes a camel, small flippers in the front, and either a large pair of flippers in the back or a powerful tail with a flipper on the end. Cadborosaurus, or Caddy for short, is named after Cadboro Bay on Vancouver Island, where it supposedly likes to hang out. And theories on it abound. Folks have explained it away as a pipefish, a giant oarfish, a basking shark, and even a sea lion. At least nine carcasses have surfaced that people have purported to be caddies, although they usually turn out to be sharks or small whales. In 2009, fisherman Nellie Cash took a video of of what he claims to be caddy. Interestingly, the native tribes in Alaska, just to the northwest of British Columbia, tell a tale about a similar creature. And they once painted its image on canoes in hopes of warding it off. The Lady in Red
1: in Lower Bay Station. To the surprise of many, the TTC map doesn't show every single stop that was once part of Toronto's underground system. There are hidden stations no longer in service, which are normally inaccessible. Lower Bay Station was opened during the early days of the TTC, but abandoned later on. Today, the station is often used for filming Hollywood films or music videos. However, it's a dark oblivion that echoes within itself when filming ceases. There are even rumors among TCC TTC workers of a ghost called the Lady in Red wearing a red dress who appears on the platform when no one else is around. And that's uh, located in um, Toronto,
0: Ontario on 135 Cumberland Street. Old Yellow Top is just a blonde Sasquatch who hangs out in Ontario instead of British Columbia in the Pacific Northwest originally reported in a newspaper in 1906 and sometimes called a Precambrian Shieldman. Old Yellowtop is often mistaken for a bear until people get a load of its yellow mane and talent for running around on two legs instead of four. The beast's fur is dark everywhere except for its head and is said to rock a shoulder-length hairdo. For a while it was sighted about once every 20 or 25 years. But its last cameo was in 1970, when it walked across the road in front of a vehicle, carrying a group of miners, and almost caused a driver to plunge down a rock cut. A secret alien base in Toronto? What do
1: Area 51 and Lake Ontario have in common? Very little, apart from alien conspiracy. Underneath the lake according to conspiracy theorists and extraterrestrial enthusiasts, is an alien base which causes strange light patterns to be occasionally seen. It's rumored that orbs of light seen during the night fly in the direction of a power plant located in Mississauga, the Lakeview Hydroelectric Power Plant. As far as credible UFO sightings go, there isn't conclusive evidence to prove that a base exists in the lake. Still, the thought of aliens choosing to live in Toronto underneath the sewage disposal is humorous, to say the least. No, it's smart. because no one's sticking a look in there. Thank you.
0: This is one of my all-time favorite UFO stories. This freaked me out when I saw it on Unsolved Mysteries. In 1967, Stephen McCulloch ventured out into the woods around Falcon Lake near Winnipeg, Manitoba. In search of silver and quartz. He was startled by a gaggle of geese, and then noticed two cigar-shaped crafts hovering in the air. One flew away, but the other landed. McCulloch waited half an hour before approaching. He heard mechanical whirling noises, smelled sulfur, and felt warm air as he got closer. He noticed an open door panel coming from inside were colored lights and voices muffled by a constant humming. Suddenly the panel door closed and a blast of gas from the craft knocked McCulloch off his feet. His clothes were set ablaze. He managed to take them off and made his way back to town. He felt extremely sick, dizzy, and had burns on his stomach resembling a grid. Doctors discovered McCulloch's sickness was caused by radiation, and officials who checked the alleged encounter site discovered radioactive soil samples and metal melted into the rocks. Several government departments investigated the incident, but concluded the case would forever remain unexplained. The
1: Legend of Gibraltar Point Lighthouse A historic relic on the Toronto Islands, this lighthouse is shrouded in a mysterious legend that has existed for over a century. According to legend, the first keeper of this lighthouse, J.P. Muller, angered some soldiers from Fort York. Muller was selling whiskey to the soldiers when they discovered he was watering down their liquor. Oh boy. When the soldiers confronted Muller, a drunken brawl broke out and the lighthouse keeper was murdered. It was murder! It was murder, Sam! That's my Jack Klugman Quincy impression. Murder! The only signs of suspicion was blood cascading down the spiraling stairs with no body in sight. Years later, in 1893, another lighthouse keeper, George Dernan, decided to search for the corpse and eventually discovered that scattered bones were buried near the lighthouse a jawbone was found although it was not possible to conclude whether or not it was muller's as one of the oldest urban legends in toronto the truth behind muller's death and the identity of the murderers remains a mystery to this day let me tell you something if you're going to if you're going to cheat somebody out of their whiskey by watering it down you don't do it to a bunch of soldiers
0: thank you the university of toronto built in 18 18- 56 is said to be haunted by the ghost of a stonemason murdered in it. Diabolos and Reznikoff were stonemasons who worked on the university college during its construction in the late 1850s. Ivan Reznikoff was a huge man with fingers and thumbs bigger than his carver's mallet and a violent temper. Paul Diabolos was a sculptor from... Corinth, pale, young, handsome, and of a subtle nature. Their opposite temperaments were reflected in their work. Diabolos was credited with much of the best carved work in the East Wing of the University College, destroyed in the fire of 1890. He was also said to have used Reznikoff's hideous face, more like a baboon than a man as a model for one of two gargoyles by the chimney between Croft Chapter House and the small cloister. Meanwhile, around the corner, Riznikov toiled and drank deeply from a flask he kept inside his shirt. He is said to have sculpted a gargoyle in the chimney that showed all the earmarks of a drunkard's touch. The two men were in love with the same woman reznikov had promised to marry her and they had saved together for this but diabolos persuaded her to run away with him instead taking reznikov's savings with them however before they could leave they were found out on the empty worksite diabolos and reznikov confronted one another in the confines of the smaller cloister at the southwest corner of the building with a workman's axe Reznikov attacked Diabolos, who carried a dagger. They fought and wrestled until the giant Reznikov backed his enemy against the door and struck him with his axe. But Diabolos had clutched the iron handle of the door, and as the blow descended, the door swung inward. Both fell headlong onto the floor and the axe cut deep into the oak door, where the scar is still seen today. Diavolos fled through the unfinished interior of the building, pursued by Reznikov along the corridor into the entrance hall and up one of the double flights of stone steps to the second floor. There he listened as his enemy climbed slowly toward him. He could not escape down the opposite flight of steps because the way was blocked with mason's tools piles of boards and broken stone diabolos stood for several seconds thinking that his time had come but turned and ran up the wooden stairs to the third floor where he hid in the angle of the tower when reznikov came into view diabolos pounced on him with his dagger there was a sudden thud, a groan, and Ivan Reznikov fell dead on the floor. To conceal the body, Diabolos threw it down the stairwell, over which the circular staircase leading to the roof of the tower was built. What became of Diabolos and the woman, we do not know. Resnikov haunted the college for many years, and it was only since his bones were found after the fire of 1890, And consigned to a decent grave that he left the college in peace. His burial place is said to be under a maple tree at the northeast corner of the UC Quadrangle. Rumor has it that his head was never found and that a skull discovered much later may belong to him. However, even today, people report that late at night in the college, there are creaking and banging noises that cannot be explained.
1: This is DJ Randy bringing you the tunnel song. Everybody on the tunnel song you can ignore, make you train side by side. Wow, here's a story out of the city of Toronto called the Cabbage Town Tunnel Monster. And here's this week's Cryptid Corner out of Canada. The city of Toronto once had numerous streams and waterways that as the city expanded were built over and became a network of underground waterways buried beneath the city and merging with the sewer systems. The Algonquin tribes of Canada spoke of man-like hairy creatures that thrived in these rivers before they were hidden away from the public. In 1978 a similar monkey-like creature was sighted living in an underground tunnel in Toronto. When you look at Toronto, you may only see a bustling city of former Degrassi cast members, big business, and sports fans. While you wouldn't be totally wrong, the Six is far more than meets the eye. According to local legend, there very well could be sewer monkeys just beneath their lively Canadian streets. Many believe that these Tuttle Terrors, also known as Memeguesi, occupied Toronto's waterways long before Drake ruled above ground. So here's one sighting, one uh, man's sighting from 1978. It was a warm summer's day in August of 1978 when a Toronto man had an experience with a strange creature that would forever change his life. Ernest, okay, this is a story about the urban legend guy with the kitten. Excellent. Ernest, he would only allow his first name to be used, was a soft-spoken 51-year-old at the time of his harrowing experience. He and his wife of 19 years had been raising a litter of kittens. One of the kittens apparently disappeared, and Ernest decided to search for it in the vicinity of their Parliament Street apartment. Close by, he stumbled upon the opening to a dark cave and crawled approximately 10 feet inwards. This is where he said, I saw a living nightmare that I'll never forget. Armed with only a flashlight, Ernest encountered a creature of unknown origin. He described the monster as long and thin, almost like a monkey. Three feet long, large teeth weighing maybe about 30 pounds, with slate-gray fur. However, it was the eyes that truly stood out, orange and red, and slanted. Ernest spoke reluctantly with reporters as to what occurred next. The creature spoke to him. I'll never forget it! It said, Go away! Go away! in a hissing voice. Then it took off down a long tunnel off to the side. I got out of there as fast as I could. I was shaking with fear. Ernest never approached the media with his story. He was afraid that people would think he was drunk or worse, crazy. and felt that no one would ever believe him. The uh, the Toronto area newspaper called The Sun found him after hearing about his experience from a reliable contact who worked with a relative of Ernest's, one of the handful of people to whom he had confided the experience. He would agree to talk only if his last name was not revealed. Is a plan. But when the music stops, the tunnel's gonna fall and drop. And now you're stuck in the middle of the tunnel.
0: This creepy UBC urban legend will send chills down your spine. By Elena Shepherd. Thanks, Elena. Let's see if this sends chills down your spine. Legend has it that if you drive along University Boulevard toward Point Grey that you may encounter a spirit. According to a story, a woman famously known as the UBC Hitchhiker Will ask a man for a ride Once she's inside the car she hands the driver a handwritten note Following this however, she is said to vanish into thin air Of course, this type of story isn't exactly unique According to Ghosts of Vancouver, These ghost hitchhiker stories are common urban myths. They usually involve a woman, typically wearing a white dress, who asks a stranger for a ride on a lonely road. Afterward, the woman will disappear, often without saying a word throughout the duration of the encounter. The UBC myth has multiple variations, but they all involve a disappearing hitchhiker. Some people claim that she was soaking wet from the rain and acts extremely distressed, while others report that she is quiet and mysterious. UBC film students created a dramatization of the tale in UBC's Legend of the Vanishing Hitchhiker. The short film was created in 1986 and tells the story of a couple who get into a heated argument on their way to the library. The woman leaves the car while they argue and is struck by oncoming traffic. Consequently, she becomes the infamous hitchhiking spirit. Many people also believe that the university's campus is haunted by more than one spirit. For example, UBC reports that the library may be haunted, as staff say they've seen books fly off the shelves by themselves. What's more, one of the librarians swore that she could hear someone tapping. When she was the only one in the library. Although it's impossible to know if any of these accounts are true, they might make you think twice the next time you visit campus. Did you get chills? <laughs>
1: This story is called The Ghost Ship of Northumberland Strait. In Canadian ghost lore, the Ghost Ship of Northumberland Strait is a ghost ship set to sail ablaze within the Northumberland Strait, the body of water that separates Prince Edward Island from Nova Scotia and New Brunswick in eastern Canada. The legend of the ghost ship in Northumberland Strait dates back at least 200 years and it's typically described as a beautiful schooner that has three or four masts with pure white sails, all of which are said to become completely engulfed in flames as onlookers watch. Um, According to local folklore, the ghost ship appears before a northeast wind and is a forewarning of a storm. A number of legends and ghost stories exist that describe sightings of the ghost ship over the years, and include descriptions of distinctive outlines of the ship's masts and phantom crew members climbing them before the vessel supposedly either completely burns, sinks, or vanishes. According to legend, in 1900, a group of sailors boarded a small rowboat in Charlottetown Harbor and raced towards the phantom ship to rescue the crew, only to have the ship vanish. In January 2008, 17-year-old Matthew Gigui told a local newspaper he believed he saw the legendary phantom ship in the Taramuchi Bay, describing it as a bright white and gold ship. Another resident, Melvin Langell, also claims he saw the ship one night in October, explaining, I believe in all that stuff, and I don't know what else it could be. Of course, here comes the freaking uh, party pooper. In 1905, New Brunswick scientist William Francis Ganong says, The legend may have arisen due to a natural electrical phenomenon such as St. Elmo's Fire that had been subject to interpretation as the flaming rigging of a ship. Yeah, it also creates the illusion of uh, sailors climbing up the sails. You know, there's always one that got to ruin everything. And uh, it's also uh, in music and popular culture. The Ghost Ship has become widely known in recent years, in part due to a popular song by Lenny Gallant, a Canadian singer-songwriter, and here it is... And that's the story of the
0: ghost ship of Northumberland Strait, Nova Scotia. Vancouver's oldest neighborhood is alive with spirits from the past. By Allie Turner. Thanks, Allie. Sometime around midnight, a woman glides from the closed elevator doors into the landing lobby. She wears a long white dress and appears to not notice the night guard. At his desk. Outside is a chilly autumn night, and rain pelts the floor-to-ceiling lunette window, mimicking the tears running down the woman's face. She drifts toward the glass, the lights of Coal Harbor, and the North Shore, beyond blurring together in an indistinct neon tapestry. She stares straight ahead, not turning to acknowledge the night guard's call. He tries to approach her but she disappears leaving a puddle of tears where she stood. The lady in white is infamous among the men working the graveyard shift at the landing. Once a warehouse for supplies during the gold rush but now a multi-tenant commercial building. She only shows herself to men and only on cold rainy nights. One security guard reported feeling frozen in place when he tried to reach for her, and said her weeping escalated into hysteria until she suddenly vanished. Some say the term graveyard shift originates from cemetery attendants listening at night for the sound of bells from the coffins of those buried alive. Others, that it comes from the deathly silence or the likelihood of late night accidents. Regardless, the graveyard shift is still marked with the same strained apprehension. Just ask any security guard or janitor who walks empty halls in the witching hours, especially in Gastown, Vancouver's oldest developed area, which has survived fire, pandemics, and tragic accidents, even when its residents didn't. There's fertile haunting ground Wherever you have tragedy, says Lydia Williams, owner of Ghostly Vancouver Tours, an expert on Gastown's ghosts. It all adds not only to the lore of an area, but to the unrest of spirits. One particular block between Waterfront Station and the Old Spaghetti Factory is home to at least a dozen ghosts who have been spotted... By night workers and patrons, and whose stories both delight and unnerve. The lady in white's visits are not only legend but have also left a permanent mark on the landing, warping the floor where her tears fell. Maintenance crews have investigated non paranormal explanations for the warp but have found nothing. The theory is that the lady in white is looking out to sea mourning a lost sailor. But Williams has other ideas. Is she crying over Hub Clark? That's always my theory, because it's a perfect view of the rail yard, too, she suggests. Hub Clark is perhaps Vancouver's most legitimized ghost. Both Canada Post and Royal Canadian Mint have included him in special collections honoring Canada's most famous hauntings. The story of Hub Clark is simple and tragic. He was an unlucky brakeman in 1928 who slipped on the wet tracks one night and was knocked unconscious, then beheaded by an oncoming train. In the years since, people have reported sightings of a flickering lantern floating in the distance and even a headless man carrying the light up and down the tracks. Williams claims that a haunting is built on attachments. According to her, much ghostly activity is just a replay of residual moments trapped in the stones of a place. For instance, a woman in a flapper dress has been spotted swaying to ghostly jazz music in the hall of Waterfront Station before disappearing into the ether. But the station's darkest story tells of the portrait of a ghost that lives in the basement two stories beneath the feet of unwitting commuters after meeting the spirit of an old woman down there the security guard was wrecked with nightmares her visage haunted him in mirrors and windows until though by no means an artist he was compelled to paint her portrait in the dead of night He brought the painting to work and hung it in the basement, after which his nightmares ceased. A custodian moved her to a different building because of electrical anomalies, such as cell phone interference, power outages, and noises, but he was forced to return it when he too became haunted by nightmares. Now new security guards are brought down to meet the lady as part of their onboarding. Few civilians have ever seen the ghostly portrait, but Williams has a photo of it on her phone. The lady's eyes and mouth are X'd over with yellow spray paint, creating violent gash-like absences where her expression and personality should be. It's almost as if someone were trying to close off her essence to prevent her escape.
1: Dozens of people met their end in the Headless Valley. In 1908, people began finding headless forms in northwest Canada's Nahanni Valley. Some attributed the sufferers to the Wahila, a giant wolf-like creature that hunts in packs of two or three. An estimated 44 cadavers have turned up in the valley since then, including a prospector, whose cabin burnt to the ground in 1917 and an unknown miner found still in a sleeping bag in 1945. The area appropriately became known as the Headless Valley. While the slayings could also be attributed to native groups, competitive prospectors, or hungry grizzlies, many still believe the mysterious packs of Wahila are to blame. The people are ripping off people's heads! Thank you. Headless Valley. The Thetis Lake Monster. Sometimes referred to as the Canadian Lizard Man, the Thetis Lake Monster first appeared in 1972 when it allegedly came out of the lake and went after two teenagers. The kids claimed the five-foot-tall monster looked like the Gill Man from The Creature from the Black Lagoon. While they were trying to escape, the cryptid managed to scratch one across the hand with its barbed-webbed claws. A few days later, others claimed to witness the beast. Its body was silver and shaped like an ordinary body, like a human being, but it had a monster face and was all scaly with a point sticking out of its head, great big ears and horrifying eyes. The second set of witnesses eventually admitted they made up their story, but the first two never went back on their claim. People forgot about the monster for many years until in 2011, another person claimed to have been charged by a beast with claws and scaly skin. There's the uh, Canadian
0: lizard man. Mahaha is a maniacal demon that terrorizes parts of the Arctic. This creature is described as a thin, sinewy being, ice blue in color and cold to the touch. Mahaha's eyes are white and they peer through the long, stringy hair that hangs in its face. This demon is always smiling and giggling. It is strong, very strong, and it is always barefoot. Mahaha is usually seen with almost no clothing on, yet it never seems to be bothered by the cold. This cold demon takes pleasure in tickling its victims to death with sharp, vicious nails attached to its long, bony fingers. Many elders have remarked on the expression of the dead victims Mahaha leaves behind. It seems all of the victims have a similar expression on their dead faces. A twisted, frozen smile. Although this demon is twisted and evil, Mahaha is easily fooled. Most of the stories told about Mahaha end with it being fooled. Usually Mahaha is tricked into leaning over a water hole to take a drink and is pushed into the open water and swept away by the currents. So if Mahaha ever corners you alone, ask it to have one last drink with you by the water hole before it tickles you to death.
1: a great example of a crisis apparition the story of the Wynyard apparition dates back to 1785 when british army lieutenant george Winyard and captain john sherbrooke the future governor general of british north america sat in Wynyard's rooms in sydney ns nova scotia conversing by the fire when the figure of a tall young man appeared by a closed doorway, Winyard's face turned ashen. The youth looked at him, then floated by the fire and through a door. It was Wynyard's favorite brother, who was in England at the time. Winyard later learned he had died at 20 years old at the very moment he'd appeared in Sydney. Thank you.
0: The Untold Truth of the Money Pit in The Curse of Oak Island by Shane O'Neill. Thanks, Shane. Legend has it that Oak Island, a small landmass just off the coast of Nova Scotia, is home to one of the most impressive treasure troves in human history. Riches beyond belief, significant historical artifacts, and more are said to reside somewhere on the island. Beckoning explorers from all areas of the globe to try and find them. The latest and most prominent individuals to take on the island's challenge are siblings Rick and Marty Lagina, who have documented their quest via the almost nine season long series, The Curse of Oak Island. <laughs> nine seasons, and I've never heard of it since January of 2014. Oak Island has staked its claim as one of the top treasure hunting programs on the air. The Lagina's crew has grown significantly to include a host of people with extensive backgrounds in areas such as landscaping and metal detection. Though their combined efforts have yielded mixed results, the Oak Island team remains committed to its cause no matter how much time, money, or energy. They have to sink into it. Some may call their mission a money pit, but ironically, that's the very thing they're looking for. The famed money pit of Oak Island is said to be the motherlode when it comes to the locale's offerings, and the Laginas have touted it as an essential element of their operation. Here's the untold truth of this hidden cache. No one knows what it actually contains. More often than not, archaeologists know what they're looking for when they go out to unearth relics of the past in the case of the oak island money pit however the fact of the matter is no one truly knows what the facts are its contents are a total mystery prompting people to go to great lengths to learn the truth but speculate on what it holds and who put it there in the meantime suffice it to say some of these theories Are out there, but until the truth comes to light, they're the best we've got. According to the History Channel, one of the main speculative stories centers on the notorious Captain William Kidd, who plagued the high seas throughout the late 1600s. Word has it that the supposed riches that lie in the money pit came from one of his final raids on the Spanish galleon. On the other hand, there's the belief that the Knights Templar and, oddly enough, William Shakespeare are connected to the Money Pit. This line of thinking posits that the famed playwright's written works include hidden messages pointing to Templar treasure that the Money Pit may house. Its true location is a mystery. Descriptions of the Money Pit are all fairly similar. Using a centuries-old tell as a point of reference. In the late 1700s, a local teenager took notice of a strange indentation in the ground. So he gathered up some friends and started digging. What they found was a roughly 100 feet deep shaft with wooden platforms meticulously placed at 10 foot intervals. Something that big and unnatural shouldn't be hard to find, right? Not quite. Since the location of the original money pit is currently unknown and may remain as such forever, as explained on the History Channel's website, an apparent expedition to pull the money pit's riches to the surface in the 1960s has caused issues for the Lagina brothers in the modern day. This excavation attempt caused seawater, clay, rubble, and more to overtake the original money pit collapsing the nearby digs into a massive, dirty mess. Therefore, all anyone can do now is make their best guess as to where it once was, cross their fingers, and start digging. Of course, there's also the flooding system to worry about, which brings in gallons of water from the nearby Smith's Cove to make exploration even more difficult. The Laginas are said to own it. Oak Island, as... A hole is far from a sprawling metropolis with a population of year-round residents that you can count on one hand. At the same time, the excavation operation that the Loginas run is enormous and surely requires them to jump through countless legal hoops. After all, it's not their backyard, so having to handle extensive paperwork and confer with the proper authorities is paramount to their mission, regardless of how many people occupy the island. Although when it comes to the money pit, the fact that they own it likely makes their work somewhat easier. Unsurprisingly, when it comes to Rick and Marty's partial ownership of Oak Island, there is a bit of uncertainty and, naturally, debate. History Channel cites the Oak Island Society comprised of the Lugina siblings, and a few other partners as owning 78%, notably including the Money Pit. Alternatively, Distractify points out that Oak Island Tours, Inc. owns 50% of the island and that the Laginas bought a 50% stake in the company, thus making them partial owners. At any rate, no matter... No matter how much of Oak Island they own, it's impossible to deny the impact that the Lagina brothers have had on the area. Hopefully, someday the mysteries of the Oak Island money pit will be solved. But until that day comes, make sure to keep an eye on the curse of Oak Island and all of the Lagina's latest discoveries.
1: It's been almost 200 years since stories of poltergeists and flying objects gripped southern Lambton County, but those unexplained events continue to fascinate today's researchers. Historians Rick Fair and Christopher Lorson recently described the wealth of material written about the John Taylor McDonald Farm in Sombra Township, and much of it can be found at the Lambton County archives, they said. The unseen forces that terrorized the MacDonald family for two years are exceptionally well documented, said Lorson, who has studied poltergeists for 15 years. The Baldoon mystery, as it's known, is consistent with poltergeist phenomena reported in modern times, he said. MacDonald and his family were among Lampton's first European settlers, having arrived from Scotland in 1804 to colonize the Baldoon settlement. The community was founded largely on swampland and malaria wiped out many early inhabitants. Others despaired over their poor farming conditions and left. But John Macdonald stayed with his wife and young family to try to make a go of it. Okay, are we all gonna make believe we don't notice it's McDonald's farm? Okay. In eighteen twenty nine, trouble of a different sort began. The McDonald women were working in a barn when three poles from the roof inexplicably inexplicably fell to the ground, narrowly missing them. They ran away, ran away terrified. Soon, unexplained noises were a common occurrence. Lying in their beds, the family would repeatedly hear the sound of men marching to battle in the kitchen. The baby's cradle rocked violently and couldn't be stopped even with the effort of three men. Rocks and bullets frequently flew through windows, as witnessed by numerous visitors to the house. The family marked the rocks and threw them in the river, only to have the same rocks come back through the glass minutes later. In frustration, McDonald boarded up the windows, but the rocks flew through the boards. Fires would ignite without explanation, sometimes as many as twelve at a time. It became clear that someone or something wanted the family to leave, so they moved to a relative's home nearby, but the huntings followed them there. As news of the strange events spread, people came to see for themselves. Some gave eyewitness accounts that survive to this day. Neil MacDonald, one of John's children, provided the most detailed account, having lived through it as a boy. He waited for his father to die 30 years later, then interviewed 26 witnesses and wrote a book. Five people said they witnessed the flying stones, marked them, and saw them return through the window soaking wet. The McDonald's tried numerous times to stop the activity. A local priest performed an exorcism, which only made matters worse. A St. Clair Township headmaster named Robert Barker, who dabbled in the occult, volunteered to investigate, but he was convicted of pretending to practice witchcraft and sentenced to a year in jail. He won on appeal and was released. Then, in 1830, the incidents abruptly stopped. As the story goes, a frustrated John MacDonald contacted a reader in Long Point who told him to shoot a silver bullet at a black goose on his property. There was talk of an old woman, a shapeshifter, with a grudge against the family. MacDonald shot the goose, and the following day he saw an old woman with her arm in a sling. The Baldoon mystery has been called Canada's most famous ghost story. Lorson said dismissing it as fake is difficult because of the many eyewitness accounts, newspaper articles, and books written about it. It's such a rich story, said Fear, adding witchcraft was commonly blamed for strange activities in the 19th century. Lorson and Fear were the guest presenters at the uh, April 7th online event to celebrate Archives Awareness Month throughout april lambton county archives is featuring daily themes relevant to the archival world including behind the scene tours of the vault and more stories from its collection and that's the uh baldoon mystery another story out of uh canada
0: thank you the screaming tunnel niagara on the lake ontario Legend says that this short Canadian tunnel still holds the dying screams of a girl who was burned alive. While some would say that this arched stone tunnel running beneath the Grand Trunk Railroad, not to be confused with Grand Funk Railroad, tracks in Niagara Falls is just that. But for those with ghost stories dancing around in their fevered imaginations the dark passage is haunted by the screams of a girl a hundred years dead. The tunnel is known as the Screaming Tunnel and was created in the early 1900s, not as a thoroughfare, but as a drainage passage to keep the tracks from being lost beneath floodwaters. The fact that it allowed local farmers a convenient path to avoid the oncoming trains overhead came only as a secondary use. Made from 125 feet of limestone bricks, the tunnel took on a haunted air early in its existence as moss and algae took hold of the porous stones. Given its eerie look, it is no wonder the simple tunnel became home to its own legend. According to one version of the story, a local farm near the tunnel caught fire one night and a young girl ran across screaming from the blaze. Her and clothes alight. Before she could find help, the girl collapsed right in the middle of the tunnel, perishing from her burns. Assumedly, this was not quite grisly enough for increasingly modern audiences. So, another version of the story has also appeared, in which the young girl is burnt to death in the tunnel by her father, mad with rage. In any event, the stories agreed on the outcome. The girl's spirit still haunts the tunnel, and if a match is lit off the tunnel wall around midnight, you can hear her scream. While this is more likely to be a late-night train passing overhead, the legend has proven pervasive enough to completely rebrand the otherwise unremarkable tunnel in the popular conscience. The University of
1: Toronto's Soldier's Tower. The University of Toronto downtown is a collection of historical structures with a long history of achievements. It isn't surprising to hear that there are some urban legends attached to Toronto's historical university. The Soldiers Tower, a bell and clock tower unveiled in 1924, serves as a memorial to the Canadian soldiers who fought in the World Wars. Supposedly, a caretaker slipped off the tower while cleaning the bell and fell to his death in the 1930s. Today, some students have claimed to see a man falling off the tower, but upon arriving to the scene, there was no one in sight. At night, some others say the caretaker's room is lit with his silhouette. That's some uh, haunted Toronto urban legends and that's
0: about all the time we have for this week we hope you enjoyed our venture into canadian urban legends we'll see you again here next week god bless you guys and See ya.
1: I'm in a parking lot singing this and everyone's looking at me stay tuned for more In Dark Places